As we look back and reflect on the spiritual disciplines, one of the things we might find ourselves asking is, what's the purpose of spiritual disciplines? And you may say, well, it's to discipline you spiritually. And that, that's true. Uh, but for what end? Because one of the things that the, the Pharisees in Jesus' day did is they practiced spiritual disciplines, but they were an end in themselves so that they could say, I pray, or I memorize scripture, or I fast, as if that's the goal. But that's not the goal. It's a means to an end. Spiritual disciplines are meant to conform us into the image of Christ, that we might become more like him so that we might live lives that glorify God and that we might become his servants, ready to serve him fully in whatever means he so desires. And if they don't accomplish that, then it's just activity. So with that in mind, um, I'd like to tackle a subject uh, today that uh, very likely um, will not be a favorite for many. I want to talk about uh, missions. So I'm just going to turn around here for a minute and give any of those of you that aren't interested a chance to kind of uh, scoot out. So um, go ahead if you'd like, like to do that. Um, seeing that you've remained, uh, it's either because you're interested or you're a coward. So <laughs> whatever the case. But um, missions is very often treated as sort of like a little subject that we put over to the side and maybe visit it once in a while or, or have a missionary come and speak. We say, okay, yeah, that, that's, that's interesting and so on. But the reality is missions is what the Bible is all about. It is the Bible. I mean, that is what God's plan is, is all about. And it's very easy to miss that. And then we wonder, why does my Christian faith just seem to be so kind of mundane and kind of so ho-hum? It's because we get off focus. And we think it's about praying only or reading our Bible or practicing this church discipline or, the, or the, these the spiritual disciplines or, or going to church or not doing certain things or doing other things as if that's all there is, but that's not all there is. There's a bigger picture that we are called to jump into and be a part of. So that's what I want to talk about today, and thank you all for staying to hear me out. I, I realize it is Labor Day weekend. When I pastored for a number of years in Nutley, I had a, a friend in the congregation who used to fill in for me uh, whenever I needed someone very often on Labor Day weekend, and I'd come back because I was away, like half the congregation, and uh, he'd say everything went well. The, half of the congregation and I had a great time, so thanks for letting me fill in on one of the non-busiest Sundays of the year. So the temptation is to say, well, you know, it's Labor Day weekend, a lot of people are gone, just go with something simple, something easy. No, I want to challenge you today. And so what we want to talk about is missions mythbusters. You've heard say that 10 times fast, missions mythbusters. It can really be a challenge. You've heard of the show Mythbusters. Myth, Mythbusters. Um, and, and that happens with regard to missions too. And so I want to try to uh, address some of those today. There are a lot of myths in our culture. And what happens is we tend to just believe them because people say them and because that's our experience. So for example, you've heard the statistic that half of all marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. Myth. It's not true. It's, it's spoken, it's, it's in publications, and people share it all the time, but it is, a, it is a false statistic. Now, I realize that in the day and age of Google, you can hold me accountable. So young people who have already started to Google this, Google 50% divorce myth, and you'll find tons of writing on this. But nonetheless, it's something people say all the time, it's even in books and so on. It isn't true. And, and part of the problem with it is it discourages people, say, why would I get married if you've got a 50% chance of survival? Would you want to go into surgery if they said, we've got a 50% chance of surviving? Could we skip that surgery? I'm not sure I want to do that. 
And what's also left out of that whole thing is the fact that there are so many factors which, if these things are done, greatly increase the uh, likelihood of a marriage succeeding. And so the picture is not nearly as bleak as it's presented, but it is a myth that's perpetuated. There's the myth of, of cohabitation. People sometimes say, well, we're going to cohabitate before marriage because, you know, you always, you're going to buy a used car. You want to take it for a ride around the block. So you're comparing your future mate to a used car. Just a thought. But the statistics don't bear it out because statistically it shows that people who don't cohabitate have a higher percent chance of a successful marriage. So nonetheless, there are myths that perpetuate despite the data. So we need to be uh, careful about what we embrace, and the internet, of course, is a haven for these things. Uh, we call these things urban legends, and there are whole web pages uh, devoted to these, these urban legends uh, that exist. And we, we waste our time, and we forward things at work, and uh, perpetuate myths that simply aren't true. Many of you may recall the whole Procter & Gamble thing from a few years back, and unfortunately, Christian people were often behind that. Hey, did you hear of Procter & Gamble and the CEO, and he's devoting money, uh, giving money to the Church of Satan and their symbol, and it just was not true. And unfortunately, people were getting all behind that and so on, and it was a perpetual thing that they had to keep addressing. If we foster myths about things uh, in our culture, they, it may or may not be uh, a harmful thing. But if we foster myths about things related to God's plan, his ultimate eternal plan, that's a big problem. Because we can do damage that is far-reaching in its scope. And so I want to talk to you today about God's ultimate plan, missions, and some of its myths. And I hope today's message will serve to seal some crucial truths, and I hope it helps missions become more essential for you than it has been. And so a key idea to keep in mind, I'm going to try to use this pointer today, which I know is not typically done. Oh, success, look at that. God's program is plagued by missions myths. Part of why I wanted to use this, truth be told, it's got a little laser, so that's really the reason I insisted on using it, because I love that thing. But anyway, so my hope is that together we can expose some of the myths that are prevalent and poisonous. And so Three that we'll deal with today, I'm sure there are others, are these, that missions is optional, and that missions is, there we go, uh, I hope I did that and not you, but that's okay, thanks Iris, appreciate that, missions myth, missions is boring, missions is optional, and missions is endless, those are three myths I'd like to look at today. Corporations and organizations often take time to compile a new five-year or a new 10-year plan. The goal is to refocus the vision, to channel their energy toward one ultimate purpose. But folks, God doesn't have a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. God's plan is eternal, and it does not change, and it is always laser-like in focus. It doesn't need to be refocused. We need to be refocused to get on board with it, but God's plan does not need to be. It isn't like when Jesus was leaving, he thought, you know, I really should leave you guys with a mission statement. Um, go and make disciples of all nations. Like it was an afterthought. This was the plan of God throughout Scripture. Jesus just summarized it with his disciples to get them on board. But that's been the plan of God throughout Scripture. The Scripture passage that was read today from Revelation 5, verse 9, 
says, uh, verse 9 in particular, I want to summarize, it says, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and tongue and language, people and nation. That is God's long-range plan. That is what missions is all about, folks. That is what the Bible is all about. One ultimate purpose calling forth a remnant from every tribe and tongue that God will be worshipped by every one of these cultures that are far beyond the, the nations that we see. But these are these uh, people groups, as they're called. And it is God's desire that a remnant be called from each one that he might be worshipped by all the nations. Missions myth number one. Missions is boring. If you look at uh, different scriptures in the Psalms, you will see that God is a joyful God. This idea that God is kind of serene and grumpy and in a bad mood. You'll sometimes hear scholars say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament was often in a bad mood and uh, he uh, got in a better mood in the New Testament and so on. But that's not what you see in scripture. Yeah, there were times of judgment, no doubt. And it was before the cross. And so there were times where, where God had to do things that were consistent with his nature but the idea that god is grumpy is just far into scripture you look at the book of psalms and you see all over the rejoicing and the celebration that's there and psalm 67 verse 3 and 4 that we see on your screen may the peoples praise you O god may all the peoples praise you may the nations be glad and sing for joy for you rule the people justly and guide the nations of the earth that's not talking about israel alone it's talking about the nations the people groups around the world, those that would come to know him. And that was always God's plan, that it be so. In the Psalms, we read about the gladness of God and how he commands the same type of gladness from us. The idea that God is grumpy is foreign to Scripture. And to conclude that is to misread Scripture. God is passionate and thrilled in his mission to call the nations to obedience before his throne and the joy of knowing him. Luke 15, 7, the passage about the parable of the lost sheep, is an arresting statement. Uh, I'm sorry, there are some more Psalms there. I meant to refer to that. Keep going. Psalm, uh, Luke 15, 7. I tell you that in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's an arresting statement. That's a showstopper that shows the celebration that exists in the nature of God and in heaven. Heaven, I suspect, will be a loud place. If you like things quiet, that might be a problem. My wife likes the music low in the car, and please don't tell her this, but when she's not around and I'm with the kids, we blast it, <laughs> like loud. But when she's there, it gets turned down. Is that, is that even on? I'm not even sure I can hear it. She doesn't like it super loud. Unless it's Phantom of the Opera. Then that, that she blasts really loud. But, so I understand that. We like peace. We like quiet and so on. If you're like that, that's fine. I'm not sure how God's going to resolve that. Maybe a new set of ears for you. I really don't know. But I'm pretty sure the description that we see in Scripture is that heaven is a place of celebration. Not just going to be. Is now. As people come to trust Christ in faith and become a new creation. 
It doesn't say there in Luke 15, when one sinner repents, there is more planning and organizational restructuring to figure out how to do a better job of accomplishing the goal. It doesn't say everyone gets an extra day off or there's high fives everywhere. It says there's rejoicing, there's celebration, and nothing beats this. Not even 99 who already belong to God. More exciting than ground already gained is the blazing of a new trail as a Sinner comes to Christ. I, I have had the opportunity to see some amazing places on the earth. Perhaps you have too. I've been to Hawaii, I've seen Niagara Falls, I've seen the Grand Canyon, and they're all wonderful. But they are all just memories where you, you take a picture, maybe a little selfie, hopefully not too close to the edge of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls, but, you know, and you remember it in a picture or in your memory, and it's beautiful and so on, but it just fades. But what God is doing around the world that's exciting, that's real, and that will matter in eternity. I would trade all those earthly experiences for the grandeur and the majesty of knowing God, walking with him, and participating in what he's doing around the world. That's the eternal stuff. It doesn't get better than this. Folks' missions is anything but boring. I've had the privilege to uh, have served on a number of short-term mission trips. I've been to Mexico, uh, Haiti, Honduras, and three times to Russia, and they've just been awesome experiences, things that, that just change you. I remember uh, being in Haiti, it was in 2000, the year 2000, and uh, we went there with our team, and we're, we're making this bench for the church. Um, they needed benches for the kids to sit on, and so we built it the best way we knew how. <laughs> And uh, so we had this bench that they would sit on, like pews, except far less stable. And there were about 10 or 12 little Haitian girls sitting on it, and uh, the worship service starts, and all of a sudden you start to see it move a little bit. And you think, uh-oh. And before you know it, it's really swaying. And it wasn't just the music. And all of a sudden, boom, down it goes. Now, if that happened here, call my lawyer, and there'd be lawsuits, and everyone would be all upset, and mothers would be grabbing their kids and running for the hills. You know what they did? They laughed. They just laughed. And I know that seems really simple, but as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, how cool is that? It's just, it's what, could, what would be a big thing here is just such a, yeah, whatever. The electricity would go out every night in church. It's just standard. And when it did, they laughed, and they lit candles, and they just went with it. And it caused me to just look at myself and realize how poverty-stricken I am in, in, in my, my view of things because I think some things are just so important. What do you mean the lights went out? Call PSE&G, get them here, and so on. This happens every night. And the joy is just there. And it changes you. Missions is anything but boring. The other uh, myth I'd like to address, the next one is this, that missions is optional. I, it's, yeah, it's for some people. It's, you know, it's, just, it's not my thing. As if, you know, we have spiritual gifts and so we do certain things and not other things, but this mission thing, that's for some people, not for me, and, and so on. Matthew 28 is, is often a passage that's pointed to uh, and, and called the Great Commission, but actually it's just one of many summaries. Each of the Gospels has its own Great Commission statement. In fact, many books of the Bible do. In fact, throughout the whole Old Testament, you can find similar statements that show that this is God's plan to call forth a remnant from every tribe and tongue to gather around his throne to worship him. But nonetheless, this text is often called the Great Commission. It's one of many that capture it well. And it seems that historically, 
in this passage. An overemphasis has been placed on the, the first two words of verse 19. Therefore, go. Many a mission sermon, it seems, centered on the alleged command to go. And so in days gone by, this was hammered home until folks either succumbed to the emotional appeal or snuck away sheepishly, plagued by feelings of guilt because the speaker's saying, go, and you're not going. So therefore, you should feel terrible about yourself. But the emphasis in verse 19 is not to go. In fact, it's entirely possible that it is not even a command, an imperative, as they'd say in language studies. Many have made a credible case for the Greek grammar in verse 19 being translated as you go. Going, therefore, in other words. Now, that may be deflating, I realize, to some missionary in a pith helmet and a machete that's out in the jungle who says, how did I get here in this sweltering heat? Well, some missionary said, go, and it's right there in verse 19, so I went. And they weren't necessarily called by God. They were called by the message and felt guilty and so on. But the command there is not to go. That's not the, 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 the gist of verse 19. And if our understanding of Scripture is lacking, we should want to know it. The better we understand God's Word, the better we understand God. Now, I am not currently called to go, and I'm okay with that. I believe without a doubt that God has called me here at this point in time. It's immensely fulfilling to know that you are right in the place where God has called you to be. A comforting and at the same time disturbing truth about being in God's will is you will never be satisfied fully doing anything else. Now, it may sound contradictory, what I'm saying here, by suggesting that going is optional, but I'm not. Serving where I am now is God's call for me for now, and so it is for you. But I am, I hope, and I must be willing to respond to my master's orders at any time. And I believe that I am willing to do that. If he says go, if he says stay, if he says run, if he says jump, if he says do push-ups, I must obey. Although that last one would be a bit of a challenge, I must admit. God has the option of sending us, keeping us here, or using us in whichever way he chooses. Our job is to be ready to serve accordingly. Our only option is obedience to his call, whatever it is. And so when we view verse 19 carefully, it's clear that the real thrust is in the words following, therefore go. The heart of the Great Commission is make disciples of all nations. Disciple the nations. That is the Great Commission. That may involve packing a suitcase, and it may not. But all of us are called to that, and it is not optional it's also not compartmentalizable by the way how's that for a made-up word you know how we tend to compartmentalize men in particular put things in a box and move it here and so we can easily say okay you know what we got the u.s you swedes you got sweden you haitians you got haiti all right it's all good nobody gets hurt doesn't work that way all of the nations is all of our responsibility and so we have to be strategic as to how that works because in some places there is gospel saturation and in some places there is an enormous lack where people can't hear the gospel. We say, why not? We can send literature. We can send radio signals. All those things are good. 
But people need to hear the gospel from within their culture and their heart language so that they might hear and understand and, and not have cultural baggage standing in the way that they don't hear the truth of the message. It's not compartmentalizable. We all need to participate in all of it. And that's God's mission statement for his church. All we do must align itself with that central focus. So did, despite Jesus' very clear command here in Matthew 28 and other places, many have creatively attempted to fan the myth that missions is optional. It's part of church history, unfortunately. Throughout church history, there have been entire centuries when the missionary thrust was scarce or totally absent. Other than the Moravians and some of the monastic orders, many generations bought the optional lie. A man by the name of William Carey came along in the late 1700s in England, and he challenged some of the um, church elders to say, I think there's a bigger picture here. I think we need to be concerned about the nations and around the world. And as the story goes, you probably heard this before, one of the church elders said, young man, sit down. If God wants to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. Now, the interesting thing about that statement, which people don't often say, is it's actually true. I mean, it's actually true that God converts people, not us. So in, doctrine, in a doctrinal sense, it's accurate. But in the, in, in the application of doctrine, doctrine it's entirely inaccurate because we are called to participate with God in his plan and for him to use us to accomplish his goals. So William Carey did not sit down. He wrote a publication called An Inquiry and basically challenged the church to see the bigger picture. Now, many people uh, conveniently argue that, well, you know, that great commit, that only applied to the apostles. That's who Jesus was speaking to there, so that doesn't apply to us. But Carey took on that argument in 1792 with his publication of this pamphlet, the in An Inquiry. And he asked, well, if that were so, why do we baptize? Why do we teach? Why do we claim the promise of God's presence? That's all in that passage as well. Why do we do those things? Why do we say those things apply, but not discipling the nations? Although Carey, William Carey's pleas were met with resistance, he went on to become the father of the modern missions movement. And it's fascinating to see how the church has grown around the world since then. No one claiming to be a disciple of Christ is excused from the mission's task. It is central and it is obligatory. It claims ownership of every area of our lives, our time, our treasure, and our talents. And the question we have to ask is, Lord, how do you want me to use those to accomplish your ultimate plan? And it is far bigger than we, what we tend to see. Whether going or sending or mobilizing, we are called to fulfill our roles in God's plan. And by the way, the mission's thrust also mandates a willingness to release the children. So that means, youth workers, challenge your youth. Challenge them to look at the big picture. Don't hold back. We have to be willing to see the children from this church go and serve in cross-cultural settings. And not only other people's children, but ours as well. Many youth leaders will tell you that they feel the main hindrance to youth responding to the call of God in their lives is their parents. That should not be. Because 
If we're raising them to follow Christ, it doesn't mean that Harvard is more important than heaven. It's just not true. And we can easily teach them that, well, you know, you've got to go to a good school and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. And those things are not unimportant. But in many cases, we're challenging them to settle for less. And it ought not be. And many youth pastors will report that this is what they see all the time. Youth leaders challenge the youth. When they dream about big things for God, tell them, God can do that and he can use you. Step up to the plate. We are called to hold everything loosely in our lives. As Corey Tenboom said it, I, uh, to paraphrase, I've learned to hold things loosely because it only hurts my hands when God has to pry my fingers open. God will accomplish his purposes and missions isn't optional. Another myth that's often perpetuated is this idea that missions is endless. Whoops, went too far. Sorry, can we go back one? Thank you. Missions is endless. Matthew 24, 14 says this, great verse to be familiar with. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Matthew 24, 14. There is much emphasis on the return of Christ in our day, and we should know that this is nothing new. From the first millennium uh, in the year 1000 or so, the build-up to that, there was a frenzy of, of end times activity, as people were saying, yeah, as if God is bound to our calendars that we create. It was the year 1000, yes, in our rendering and so on, but I don't know that that's God's calendar. I don't know that he keeps the same numbers that we do. Throughout church history, many have been overly distracted by the signs of the end times, and it's led to many foolish predictions and laughable activities by the people of faith. Saying they've studied the scripture well, have discovered the secret, they seem to conveniently overlook Jesus' clear words in Matthew 24, 36, where he says this. Matthew 24, I just got to switch. Here we go. Okay. No one knows about the day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Well, if they all don't know, how is it that we have figured it out? The Left Behind book series and movies of a few years ago was wonderful and stimulated a lot of discussion and, and all that's good, but we need to know that that's only one theory of how things will be. How will it actually be? Well, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion about that and a lot of disagreement, and we don't know for sure, and we don't know the day nor the hour. But having said all this, Matthew 24, 14 is a revealing piece of truth because it clearly says when the end will come. Many end times prophets point to obscure passages about the coming of Christ, but unfortunately they rarely seem to refer to this text, which I think is surprisingly clear. It tells us that the end will come after the gospel of the kingdom is preached as a testimony to all nations. It's pretty precise. The word for nations there in the Greek language is the word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnic. Nations means much more than political boundaries. There's about 200 plus political boundary type countries in the world today. But it's talking about far more than that. It's, it's, it's the people groups, as it's often called, the cultures within those political boundaries that's being referred to here. Nations means much more than political boundaries. 
These can change with the rise and fall of dictators. Nations refers to cultures and tribes, what are known as people groups. Within any given country, there may be thousands of people groups. And viewed in that way, the task can seem overwhelming, and in a sense it is, but all things are possible with God. And when we look carefully, it becomes clear that the missionary task is not endless, it is completable. When a vibrant church is planted in a particular people group, we can declare it reached, and the missionary task is complete there. You say, you mean everyone's come to Christ? No. Obviously, there's much evangelism to do, but evangelism is basically where we talk to people about the faith who understand what we're saying. Missions is about doing that, but cross-culturally, where we have to work to bridge the cultural gap. So the mission's task of cross-cultural church planting is done when a vibrant church movement exists within a given culture. Missions is mostly completed in the USA, though much evangelism clearly remains. But the cross-cultural task in the U.S. is largely minimal. Apostle Paul said it here in Romans 15. So from Jerusalem all the way around to uh, Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Now, as Paul's saying, eh, it's not really a place for me here. I, I don't have a job, or, you know, or uh, there's not much for me to do here. What he was saying is the work that he was called to do was pretty much done. There were churches. He wanted to go to places where there weren't churches because he understood the big picture of God. And that's why you will hear sometimes about mission agencies that are serving in a particular area, and they say, you know what, we're pulling out. They're not chickening out. They're not giving up. What they're saying is our work's done here. Church is alive. Is it perfect? No, far from it. They have work to do. But there are other areas where there aren't churches, and that's where we must go. Here's a fascinating chart, which you might not have seen before, or maybe you have. But this was from a, a book by uh, Dr. John Piper, Desiring God, based on a work by Dr. Ralph Winter, who was an incredible missiologist who gathered data about the work of the gospel around the world. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I get to use the pointer. In the year 100 AD, the ratio of non-Christians to believers was, now these aren't exact numbers, of course, but, but you see the trend here and how the gospel has made tremendous penetration and how the number of unreached people groups is decreasing and how the work of the gospel is going forward, but you're never going to hear this on the 6 o'clock news. It's not going to happen, and that's fine with me. But the point is, it's easy to think, well, is anything happening? And it's just, are we getting anywhere? Indeed, we are. It's fascinating. While evangelism must be carried out until Jesus comes, cross-cultural missions is not endless. There are places where missionaries pull out because the church is planted and they go on to other things. So what is in the world is God doing even since then? What are things that are happening around the world? This is from um, uh, a publication called uh, Operation World, and it talks about the growth rate of evangelical Christianity around the world. Again, you're not going to hear this on the 6 o'clock news. The countries in red, most notably Japan, Sweden, Finland, have a decreasing percentage of evangelicals. That means they're not necessarily reaching people, uh, and the number of evangelicals from year to year goes down. Those are the ones in red. You see a lot of red on there? Not much. 
Now, that's a tragedy in Japan where the gospel has never really taken off and, and we need to pray for Japan. And who knows that things in the news, even today, you heard Tim Cooper mention Korea and, and you know, Japan living in the shadow of uh, a nuclear North Korea and so on. Who knows what God's going to do? But pray for Japan. The other countries there in yellow, United States, Canada, uh, United Kingdom most notably, the rate of uh, evangelicals it is growing, but it's growing slower than the population, and so that's, that's not a great thing. But the blue is where the number of people coming to evangelical faith in Christ is growing faster than the population, is taking place in massive numbers in Central and South America, in Africa, and in Asia. This is the good news of what's happening around the world, and it's fascinating. And when we look at all this, we realize boring is not a word that can be used to describe what's going on. There's a great shift in, in the whole evangelical world as uh, around the uh, end of the 1970s, about 50% of evangelical believers in the West uh, lived and about half lived in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. And now it's very different. Three quarters of all people who profess a faith in Christ and have had a new life in Christ and found forgiveness of their sin, three quarters of them live outside of the West. It's fascinating what is going on. So what does all this mean? Does this just mean that there's a shift? It, it, it explains part of why we think not a whole lot's happening, but there are huge things happening. You know, as you watch the news and you think, man, you know, this, this ISIS stuff, I don't know, you know, like, are they going to come here and we're biting our nails and we're living in fear? And I understand all that. I, I, I get it. But is it possible that God is at work behind all of that? Is it possible that as we look around the world and as we see um, this radical Islamic terrorism taking place, that something bigger is going on behind all that? Do you know that more than any other time in history, more Muslims are coming to faith in Christ now than ever before? And it's not reported on the 6 o'clock news, and it's not going to be. But there's a book you should be familiar with called The Wind in the House of Islam. And it talks about movements of Muslims to Christ. It's not a matter of, oh, yeah, my friend, he's Muslim, he came to Christ. It's not just individual, it's, it's movements. As defined by at least 1,000 baptized believers or 100 new church plants over a two-decade period. That's pretty definable, right? That there were essentially none in the first 1,200 years of Islam. But in, uh, over the next 180 years, there were two movements. From 1980 to 2000, there were 11. And since the turn of the century... There have been 69 movements of Muslims to Christ. That's fascinating. Now, those of you that like to see this on a bar graph, we have that as well, because, I mean, isn't that fascinating? Is it possible, and it is, that there are many Muslim people around the world who are saying, look, these terrorist people, that's not me. That, I'm not, that's, you know, I don't want anything to do with that. And in many cases are saying, Boy, if that in any way is connected with what I believe, and it's unfairly done, of course, but in many cases they're saying, I don't want anything to do with that. And they move away and they're open, and then all of a sudden there's an openness to the gospel. But it is happening all around the world. So what in the world is God doing? Lots. So we talked today a bit about the um, missions myths that exist and how they easily stand in the way of our understanding of what God is doing. God calls us to 
active involvement in the throw of a lifetime, the privilege of participating in the completion of the Great Commission. Folks, bag the myths that missions is boring, that it's optional, and that it's endless. It is captivating, it is compulsory, and it is completable. As we prepare as a church for the beginning of a busy and an exciting fall season, I want to leave you with some homework, if I may. First, missions giving. We are all called to give and support our local church, and hopefully that's a thing that you are figuring out and so on. But what about giving to missions? Very easily, it just becomes our leftovers. Oh, here's a buck. I got it lying in my pocket. I just throw that in, whatever. But what if we actually became more deliberate about how we give to missionaries and support them and, and really fund them? And look at you know, those times when you thought the car repair was going to be 400 bucks and it's only 200 bucks, and all of a sudden it's 200 bucks that you weren't planning on having, and now you do. Is it possible that God wants to use some of that to support missionaries in greater ways? And in so doing, you know, we get more involved in the task. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where we put our giving is where our hearts go. We want to become more involved in God's plan. It may be that we need to give to it in a greater way. Second homework assignment, read through the book of Acts. I've done that before and so on. Yeah, you know what? Try reading it in one sitting. How's that for a challenge? I think doing that, it's 28 chapters. It's not that hard to do because it moves pretty quickly. But it kind of gives you this feel for this thrust of the movement of God. It's a, it's a fast book and an exciting book. And you watch as God does amazing and great things all throughout the ancient world, preferably in one sitting. Another thing you can do for homework, and I don't know if we have this slide. We may not. It's okay. So I think we don't. But anyway. Oh, we do. Perfect. I want to tell you about a class called the Perspectives uh, on the World Christian Movement class. Montclair Community Church is offering this class uh, starting September 10th. And you can go to the first and the second one for free. It is a college-level class. I took it years ago at Long Hill Chapel, which is in Chatham, which is where I was going at the time. And I got graduate college credit for it. It's a serious course, lots of work, but kind of gives you a, a, a big picture on the work of God um, throughout the world. And it will transform the way you view Scripture, I guarantee it. But the first and second one are free, so it gives you a chance to check it out. Why not consider that? I took the course before we married and uh, my wife and I, and I, I challenged her to take it as well, sort of like a prenuptial prerequisite. <laughs> and she didn't call my bluff, I'm happy to say, so she took the course as well. But it just made a huge difference in our lives in terms of uh, viewing the world and the work of God. Another homework assignment. Some of you have heard about the missions prayer group that John and Nancy Vorback are putting together, and it will start beginning next month. Once a month, praying for missionaries after the uh, church service, first Sunday of the month. Why not participate in that and get more connected to the missionaries that uh, we are supporting? There's a Guatemala missions trip coming up. Some of you are going to that. Why not, if you're not going, assume that you're still called to be involved, to pray, to support, to encourage, and do whatever you can to help that trip become something that brings transformation to the church? One of the other things that uh, we are looking at doing, and you will hear about soon, and some of you know uh, Juliana Fiddler, who's doing a wonderful job setting up the coffee this morning. We've been having some conversations about starting ESL. What is ESL? English as a second language. That might not be familiar to, to you, but to people who don't speak English as their first language, they know exactly what that is. Those letters mean everything, E-S-L, because they want to learn English. And the bottom line is, we are sitting on gold 
when we have the ability to speak English. We are sitting on gold when we have the ability to speak English. And that's not a value judgment. I'm not saying English is better than other languages. I'm just saying it's powerful and it's important. And here, people need to learn to speak it and they can pay $200 at the local library or they can connect with the church and saying, you know what? Get, get your books and we'll offer it for free. And we did that for a number of years at our church and it was fascinating. You think, well, I don't think, are there many people around here that don't speak English? We put up a sandwich board sign on the front lawn and the phone rang off the hook. It's fascinating. So listen for that and consider being involved. Feel the exciting pulse, taste the obligation, and hear the trumpet of God tuning up to announce the completion of the great task. It's something we're called to and something that is plagued by myths that often interferes with our understanding. Now, one thing I want to say, if you're here today and you're one of those people who are, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out what it means to follow Christ, and you're laying this big heavy thing on me about the whole world and so on, I get it. So what I want to say to you is that um, you take your time sorting through the implications of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for your sin to offer you forgiveness of sin and to give you a new life in Christ, to find forgiveness and to be reconciled to God. And if that's where you're at and you're sorting that through, I know this might seem like a, a real heavy, but I hope what you take out of that is, you know what? As I'm going through this process of considering committing my life to Christ and finding forgiveness of sin and being reconciled to God, it's, it's an opportunity to be part of something bigger, something exciting, something that's not just going to church and, and, and being good. But it, it, it's about being part of a big picture, a big plan, an eternal plan of stuff that is going to matter a thousand years from now. And so I want to encourage you as you think through that process of committing your life to Christ. And if you're a person who's been walking with Christ for a number of years and you recognize that, you know, this has not been very front and center in my, lives, in my life, it needs to be. And I pray that there would be transformation in that regard as we consider the truths from Scripture that we've looked at today. 